0: everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Review of Democracy podcast. My name is Giancarlo Grignaschi, assistant editor to the Political Economy section, and today I have the pleasure to interview Professor Clara Mattei. She is assistant professor at the Economics Department of the New School for Social Research, where she teaches and conducts research on the history of capitalism, exploring the critical relation between economic ideas and technocratic policy making. She recently published her first book, titled The Capital Order, How Economists Invented Austerity and Paved the Way to Fascism. The book, which is edited by University of Chicago Press, investigates the origins of austerity after the First World War to understand its logic as a tool of reaction against alternatives to capitalism. And this will be today's topic. Thank you, Professor Mattei, for being here. I'm very glad to be here. So there is an element of this book which I would like to start our conversation with, namely the story of Gianfranco Mattei and your encouraging words about revolutions and revolutionaries. Would you like to share with us the story of your great uncle?
1: Yes, absolutely. The book is dedicated to revolutionaries everywhere, past, present, future, with a specific um, recalling of, uh, the the life of Gianfranco Mattei, who was my great uncle, as you said, um, who was a source of inspiration for me. Uh, I believe we all uh, can contribute uh, to do our part uh, towards critical thought that can inspire social change. And Gianfranco Mattei was actually um, a chemist. He was a professor of chemistry uh, at, already at age 27, And he um, made bombs against the um, occupation, the Nazi fascist occupation in Italy. So he was working with his comrades, uh, the partisan unit uh, called GAP. And he was caught um, and incarcerated and tortured uh, for days. And at that point, uh, knowing that they would have had given him some um, chemical substance to speak, he decided to give up his life uh, by killing himself in jail in order not to um betray his comrades in the resistance. And so his last words were very powerful. He wrote them at, on the back of a check for his parents. And they were Siate forti sapendo che lo sono stato anch'io. Be strong knowing that I wa- was also. Um, Gianfranco um really represented uh one of the many uh, young Italians who participated in the resistance uh, to defeat fascism uh, in the hope for a better future for all of us. And in this, I think we um, are all in a way um, should participate in some form of transformation of our current society because it's certainly not what uh, I think Gianfranco Mattei uh, thought he was going to fight for. I I believe there was a sense by which um, the post-World War II um, liberation of Italy would have meant a real paradigm shift in terms of socioeconomic policies. And unfortunately, this is not what we have seen. So given though that our economic system is not eternal, is not natural, uh, we can still collaborate to change it also more at its foundations. And so this is why uh, in a way, I wrote this book uh, to give my own contribution uh, to spur some critical thinking.
0: Thank you very much for sharing with us this, this story, which I find particularly important in this age of war and resistance in many regions of the world. Now jumping into the the main argument of the book, one element we must necessarily clarify for the sake of the conversation is the definition of austerity, right? So how is austerity conventionally understood or depicted, and how does your understanding differ differ from the mainstream concept? And in particular, what is the austerity trinity?
1: Thank you. Um, So the inspiration to write this book uh, came from a deep dissatisfaction towards um, the current stance of the... Uh, economic debate around austerity, um, or better, the current nature of the economic debate around austerity. In fact, uh, austerity is understood by economists in a quite a depoliticized sense, uh, looked at as a technical tool to manage the economy, which can be right or wrong, according to whether it actually produces economic growth uh, and debt curtailment or not. This type of discussion does no good in trying to understand why austerity is so resilient. Why austerity is so resilient even in the face of the many recessions austerity has caused in the last century. Um, So how is it that austerity is persistent when it's never really capable of achieving its stated goals of economic growth and balanced budgets? And this is clearly the case also today in which austerity is again rampant in the form of increases in interest rates and socia- cuts in the social spending. Keynesians can only say, well, austerity is madness. Uh, it's bad theory and it's applied o- over and over again uh, as a mistake. Now, this book tries to look deeper, tries again to repoliticize the issue and realize that actual austerity is not at all a mistake. Uh, There's a lot of method in the madness because the thesis is that austerity is crucial to uphold the fundamentals of a capitalist economy. In other words, if we want capitalism, we got to accept austerity. And this goes with the fact that the majority will suffer in order for the economy to keep strong. So this is um, the idea that actually we need to stop looking at austerity just as a tool and we need to stop at looking at austerity just as a matter of cuts in the balance in the aggregate. Aggregate analysis does not do any good to understand the logic of austerity, which is all about actually shifting resources from the majority of the working people to the minority of savers investors. So when we look at fiscal austerity, we can't look at, at the state expenditure in general because you cannot detect austerity. For example, today, in which there's a lot of money spent on the war efforts, but very little money spent on social expenditures, on public benefits, housing, unemployment benefits, um, and so on, education, hospitals. So, when we look at fiscal austerity, we need to specifically look at where the state spends. And what you see is that the state constantly spends away from the people, reduces the social benefits, impoverishes the majority by taking away some fundamental rights in schooling and housing in favor of paying back the debt, which means, again, putting money in the pockets of those who are the international creditors mostly financial institutions. Fiscal austerity is also about not only how the state spends, again, away from the people, it's also about how the state takes in the resources. And what you see is that austerity is all about regressive taxation, meaning that the brunt of taxation is upon the majority in favor of the minority. So regressive taxation is the fact that actually those who have less pay higher taxes in relative terms with respect to those who have more. So um, taxation on consumption is a form of regressive taxation because everyone paid the same taxes on oil, on bread, on tobacco, notwithstanding their income. Um, Cuts in corporate taxes, tax uh, cuts in capital profit gains. All of these are forms of regressive taxation. So austerity as fiscal austerity, but not only. Austerity also about monetary policies, so increases in interest rates. And austerity as being also about industrial policies, meaning direct attacks on organized labor, privatization labor deregulation, which increases the precariousness. So is this the trinity that you were mentioning? It's the way that I conceptualize it is to see the deep political logic of austerity. We need to look at how fiscal and monetary policies work in unison and reinforce one another with industrial policies. And all of these three types of policies of, of austerity really have the same outcome of weakening the workers and especially increasing our precariousness and our market dependence, so that ultimately we are silenced into accepting the status quo. This austerity trinity, of course, comes with a series of economic theory that justifies the policies. And this is why my work looks at austerity, not just as the trinity, but also as the theory that backs this policy in a way a praxis. And the theory, of course, is the one of the neoclassical framework uh, that uh, became dominant and diffused in the years I look at in this book, which are the early 1920s.
0: Thank you for this uh, clear answer and especially for clarifying that the book is not just about the austerity trinity per se, but also the theory that backs uh, the implementation of that trinity. Now, your argument unfolds along a comparison between two apparently different cases, namely Britain and Italy. In particular, you say, and I quote, At one end, Britain, a solid parliamentary democracy, led by well-established institutions and orthodox Victorian values, was an empire whose centuries-long world economic financial hegemony was now being contested, by an ascendant United States. At the other end was Italy, an economically backward country that was reeling from fresh revolutionary surges and civil war. Italy lacked self-sufficiency and was highly dependent on foreign imports and capital. Now, considering the historical period under examination, I believe some people may wonder why Germany, a country that clearly played a huge role in the making of the modern international relations, to say the least, is not relevant to your argument. So is this related to the argument itself, to the comparative method or to the access uh, to the sources?
1: Thank you. This is an important question. So perhaps before answering why not Germany, I should say a little bit more about why Italy and Britain so that we can actually um, explain why not Germany. The effort here is to show how austerity in its current modern form um, emerged after the First World War. Why the First World War? Well, because it was after the First World War that calls for economic democracy really emerged uh, very strongly. The the book begins with the Great War and the shock that the Great War produced upon laissez-faire capitalism. How everyone from the bourgeoisie to the militant workers had a common sentiment that the system, as it stood and had stood until that moment, was not going to last for more than a couple of years. So, real big sense of the possibility of overcoming capitalism and especially its foundations in the wage relations and private property of the means of production. It is in this moment that we see that actually these challenges to capitalism were happening at the heart of Western Europe. So not Eastern Europe, not just Eastern Europe, not just Germany, Austria, but actually Within the countries that had won the war, right? So the allies, Italy and Britain being the allies, those who had won the war had reaped the benefits of the war uh, victory. And yet we see that the social turmoil of the population was all about drastic change in the economic system and the promises coming from the bureaucrats in, in government and more radical groups were all about, well, we will now seek a system that is no longer based on production for profit, but it will be based on production for use. And we will put at the center stage the producer with an idea of economic democracy being necessary for actual political democracy to be even possible. So the first part of the book really reconstructs all of these alternatives to capitalism that were not abstract. They were very concrete. And again, they were happening at the hub of uh Western capitalism in that moment. Then, what I look at is how actually austerity emerges as a counteroffensive, an activist counteroffensive led by governments and the economists advising these governments who just had emerged as experts above parts, those that could portray themselves as having the authority of the neutral scientist who knew how the economy should work. Well, it is these experts and their governments that acted very similarly in two very different contexts, Italy and Britain. And this is why the comparison is so important, is that I tried to show how supposedly very different socioeconomic context, parliamentary democracy, Britain, the cradle of uh, capitalism, of the empire, the empire and of liberal ideology with respect to Italy, which was, a, as you read, a weak country economically, but also the birthplace of fascism. And what you see actually is that fascist Mussolini, the Duce, and his economists were, were giving their citizens the same treatment that the experts at the British Treasury and at the at the British Central Bank were actually giving to their citizens, which was again austerity in this threefold form: fiscal, monetary, industrial, which weakened the workers, killed these expectations for social change, and reentrenched capitalism as we still know it today. So, a big watershed moment in the reestablishment of the system that has lasted till this day happened right after the First World War. And it happened in countries that had, apparently, both institutions and ideologies which were very far apart, a fascist state and a parliamentary democracy. And what you see is actually that the fascist state gained from the support of all the international liberal elites because of its capacity to implement austerity. So how does Germany fit this story? Um, Well, Germany um, was not, not uh, at the hub of Western capitalism. So that's why I decided not to focus on Germany. And also because um, I think the comparison of such stark differences between these two countries was more interesting uh, for us to understand what happens today. This said, of course, Germany was a very interesting example of how actually austerity was pushed upon uh, and enforced upon all these... uh, countries who had lost the war, who found themselves in even more terrifying economic conditions. And this reminds us very well, again, of what is happening today with the IMF on Sri Lanka and other nations that are right now in economic uh, difficulty. Germany was in great economic difficulty and what the League of Nations did after the First World War was say, hey, you want some money? Well, you can get the money if you... uh, do austerity, right? So austerity was the precondition for any uh, reparations uh, and uh, um, or any uh, financial support of the League of Nations and on the West on Germany. So the German case in the 20s would be very interesting to study. Um, and again, of course, I don't know German. So given that this is all based on archival work, we would need some uh, German scholars to take in the reflection about how Austerity deeply shaped Germany in the 1920s and also we know how this also empowered uh, the reaction that came in the form of Hitler, which was not really a reaction to austerity, but Hitler definitely benefited from uh, the population being very upset with their current situation, which was induced by austerity.
0: Thank you for for the answer and for the interesting suggestions about um, potential future avenues for research. Now, moving to the next question, in the book you tell us that in between the two world wars, economic orthodoxy had two main enemies. First, reconstructionist projects, and the second enemy was people's revolutionary ambitions. Now, as you already said, the story of the book starts during World War I, when both Britain and Italy were witnessing a massive state intervention to secure the proper capital accumulation, to win the war, uh, and they were doing so essentially by dictating production, determining prices and controlling the labor market. And importantly, this public control of resources lasted even in the post-war reconstructionist period, for governments understood that that, uh, there were collective needs to be met. And interestingly, such efforts did not alleviate workers' demand for social redistribution, but rather galvanized the workers. Now, I have two questions about this. First of all, I would like to to mention the account by uh, Mariana Mazzucato uh, dealing with the entrepreneurial state and industrial policy. And uh, I would like to know, considering the two different cases you analyze, uh, if your book tells us something about the role of the state and what does it tell us? And the second question, regarding the relation between an entrepreneurial state and people's revolutionary ambitions, you describe, I quote, how political imagination toward the abolition of private property and wage relations moved from abstraction to reality, unquote. Now considering that state law is also a guarantor of private property, are the two enemies of capitalism that I mentioned earlier also enemies to each other?
1: Thank you. These are uh, great questions. So how to uh, answer? Um, I think this case study of the role of the state during the First World War and the tensions between the state and uh, workers at all levels really um, gives uh, more concreteness to a lot of theories of the state of also Marxian nature, which um, really show how the state in a way is um, necessary for a capitalist market economy to um, thrive. So this is true from the very origins of how, of course, the enclosures of the commons uh, happened through uh, the state guaranteeing private property of the means of production and uh, wage relations. So, of course, private property of the means of production wage relations, which are the pillars of capitalism, Um, have nothing natural to them, but were actually constructed, created, and then protected by the capitalist state. So what you see here is that the state uh, throughout the history of capitalism, the long history of capitalism, has always served the role of protector of these pillars and of supporter of these pillars. Now, there are certain moments uh, in history in which the state steps beyond its normal limits of what the state usually does so while this state is normally under laissez faire capitalism neutral with respect to the market in the sense that it protects it encases the market by protecting these pillars but does not intrude in the uh, activity of private agency in production and distribution. Now, what you see is that the war emergency, and this also can have us think of what happened during the COVID times we just experienced, during the war emergency after the First World War, bureaucrats running the state were forced to let go of their Smithian ideology of the invisible hand, because it was clear that without state intervention is a massive war collectivism, the state stepping in as main producer and main employer, there was not going to be enough of high rates of exploitation to guarantee the productivity levels that were required in order to win the first world war. So what happens during the war is that there's a massive breakdown of the ideology by which um, the market is ruled by impersonal forces. And there's nothing else we can do because this is just the normal state of the world. And what you saw, actually, what the workers experienced on their own skin was that actually exploitation was very political. It was actually something that the state was fostering by and I I explained by actually curtailing the bargaining power of the workforce. So in this moment in which uh, the pillars are repoliticized, people are realizing that the state has ample space of maneuver also in the economy. um, There are many things that states bureaucrats could do. Uh, What happened in 1919 was that the first move was to try to pacify, as you pointed out, by uh, understanding state um, intervention as something that could also guarantee um, some social welfare and continue somehow its role as employer, uh, similar to Mariana Mazzucato's uh, idea of entrepreneurial state. Now, I would say there's a slight difference because in Mariana's work, um, which is more of a Keynesian imprint, There is a sense by which economic priority always go ahead of political priorities. What was happening after the First World War was much more radical because in their attempt to pacify the population, state bureaucrats running the state machine were willing to actually put political priorities such as housing, public housing, such as schooling, also for adults, such as um, emancipatory projects for women and child rearing before the economic necessity. So I think this is a big difference, right? It was actually something that that's why it was kind of an enemy to at least, let's say, fair capitalism, because it went against what is a um, a dictum of, um, of 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 our system, which is actually the state should just foster greater profits and put economic necessities first. But the, what the war showed was that actually the state could operate with a much larger space of maneuver, and uh, through pressure from below, coming from the people many enlightened bureaucrats were trying to figure out how to actually enlarge the social resources for the people. And then, of course, uh, the story goes that actually, given this radicalized moment, for many, this was not enough. So actually, these reformist attempts had very non-reformist results in the sense that it actually pushed people to demand for more and to actually overcome the very idea of a capitalist state together with a capitalist economy, given that it was so obvious that the state and the economy were went hand in hand in ultimately oppressing workers as a precondition for economic growth. So yes, I do agree that the varieties of enemies to capitalism that I reconstruct uh which were operating in 1919-1920, did not necessarily agree with one another. And that's why I like to look at the full spectrum of possibilities from kind of an idea of revolution through constitutional means by putting political needs prior to economic ones all the way to the factory councils, who which were actually demanding for a complete overthrow of the bourgeois state uh, in favor of a new... Form of state that was grounded on the council movement was grounded on uh, horizontal relations of production, and this was very clear not only in the shop stewards' movement in Great Britain, but also in the famous Ordine Nuovo case uh, led by Gramsci and Togliatti, which I focus very much on in my book.
0: Thank you once again for the for the answer, and especially for merging the the two questions of mine into one single coherent answer. Uh, Now talking about the threat to the old order, especially in Italy, you argue, and I quote, that the counter-movement exploded in 1919-1920, where it reached a dimension second only to Soviet Russia and Soviet Hungary, unquote. I find uh, very important that these struggles embodied also a methodological revolution, in that knowledge became a crucial element in the empowerment of workers. And um, also as a PhD candidate in political economy, I am fascinated by the fact that the main characters of these struggles sought to bridge the divide between economics and politics. This is literally what you say in the book. So if you allow me to undertake a quantum leap I would like I would I would like to link the divide between economic and politics to a worrisome problem of today namely the ever more decreasing voter turnout generally in democracy all over the world but particularly in Italy recently and uh, do you believe that the shallow notion of political stability that you mentioned in the book established by austerity As a movement against the struggle for economic democracy has to do with this trend somehow?
1: Absolutely. I would uh, categorize this uh, low turnout in elections as part of the successes, quote unquote, uh, of austerity. The capacity of austerity to completely de democratize political decisions and primarily economic decisions so that people feel completely disenfranchised, um, separate from the possibility of actually having a voice in matters that really matters to where our money goes, where our collective money goes, people feel disempowered and uh, ultimately disillusioned and do not participate in, anymore in, um, in electoral processes. And the, this, though, uh, there's two things I would like to uh, point out. One is that the um, the denunciation of bourgeois electoral democracy as a farce uh, was something that was cardinal to L'Ordine Nuovo movement and this methodological breakthrough that you mentioned. So the idea that you could not have, that you could not be sovereign, and this is, um, quoting, uh, uh, from Zeno Zini, who was at the time uh, an intellectual running these schools for workers in Italy, 1919, you could not be sobering only on the day of election, and then be a slave every other day of your life. This is, in a way, the model of bourgeois of the bourgeois state, by which you have a um, a semblance of of democracy, but actually, deep down, uh, we are all um, trapped in our conditions of um, underpaid wage workers. And we have no alternative to survive, but to actually go and sell our capacity to work for a meager uh, wage and very little rights. So the idea here is that L'Ordine Nuovo, this breakthrough, this idea of overcoming capitalism was exactly based on the idea that in order to guarantee effective participation of the people, in uh, the political and economic sphere, you needed to breach the divide between the economic and the political, and you needed to actually make sure that the political process were grounded upon participation in the workplace uh, and collective decision-making on the most important issues to organize our society, which are uh, decisions on production and distribution of resources. So clearly in this moment in which the workers had um, burst into the stage of history, demanding for greater economic participation, it was, by the way, not only the councils, you have to imagine that people had actually achieved the right to vote for the very first time after the First World War as a, um, in a way, again, as one of the uh, benefits uh, for their sacrifice so in this moment, in which call for participation were so high and so diverse, but everywhere in the hub of Western capitalism, this is when austerity had to react, and it reacted brutally in depoliticizing or better, de-democratizing uh, the economic sphere by saying no you people are ignorant or stupid, leave decisions that are important, such as economic decisions in the hands of the experts. Um, And this, I think what you mentioned about the present is exactly the result of this long history of austerity, which uh, in my view lasted, uh, we can say more than a hundred years now, in which uh, the success of disempowering people, both materially and ideologically, and ultimately of separating them from what matters in their own lives um, is uh, has reached very high peaks in the present moment. And of course, just as after the First World War, reestablishing the gold standard was so important to keep people away from monetary decision-making, today we have the equivalent of the Eurozone and the Euro, which clearly takes away all possibility for Italian uh, citizens to find ways of actually... Um, asking for greater um, say in how we can use our resources.
0: Very, very interesting. Uh, So much so that that, uh, I would like to have a follow-up question, uh, in a way, because in in, in two previous uh, interviews here at uh, RevDem, we touched upon an issue that I find related to our conversation to some extent, uh, which is this sort of, of, uh, I, I personally call it, polygamic relationship between democracy, neoliberalism, technocracy and populism. And in particular Aldo Madariaga makes the provocation in the interview that neoliberalism may be the solution against a specific type of populism which he calls threatening populism. But populism may be also the the, the corrective, a corrective to the hollowing out democracy as uh, Peter Mayer describes in his book, Ruling the Void. And on a similar note, in an interview about financial nationalism, Dora Pirovska points out that populists and financial nationalists both distrust technocracy. And such a distrust may end up redistributing the economic gains of global finance, as well as enriching a privileged minority, depending on the institutional context. The reason why I'm mentioning this polygamic relationship is because in chapter 5 of the book, you describe the Brussels and Genoa conferences as the consolidation of a powerful alliance between austerity and technocracy. Therefore, although austerity is not the product of the so-called neoliberal era, I would like to know whether it still plays a role in the complex relationship between democracy, neoliberalism, technocracy and populism.
1: Yes, this is a very, very complex uh, question. And on populism, I really um, would like to um, highly recommend reading the work of Camila Vergara, who uh, is a, a, a brilliant uh, social scientist who works on populism and tries to understand populism in an anti-oligarchic way and especially an anti-elitist way. So seeing the multifaceted dimensions of populism and also how there, there are forms of left-wing populisms, as you were describing, that actually um, a push for greater participation uh, and uh, reconnection. So I think her work in this is, um, is, is really, really important, because I do believe that there's so many different interpretations of populism, and many are actually very instrumental uh, to the cause of austerity, because it is a way, once more, to... Um, delegitimize the people as being ignorant and ultimately dangerous for their own uh, sake, right? So the idea is that the people can't even understand for themselves what is good for them. And this is a typical rhetoric that is part and parcel of austerity and is uh, is great once more uh, to um, um, justify the rule of the elite which is creating in our current society levels of inequalities and of social sufferings, which are really at this point outrageous and should not be accepted any longer. But the idea of um, treating any uh, movement for social change as populist and potentially right-wing is really a way for um, those in power, the experts in power, to hide and to escape the responsibility in having really impoverished and upset um, everyone, Uh, uh, everyone who is not the elite, right? So uh, in a way, capitalism has losers and winners, and uh, austerity experts are there to make sure that the winners are always the same and the losers are the majority, And I think um, this is something that we need to realize is not just a problem of neoliberalism. It has a much longer history. Again, uh, focusing on neoliberalism gives you a sense that, oh, then we can just get, get rid of neoliberalism, which is the exception, and we can go back to a form of humane capitalism that could ultimately uh, be good for all. But if we want to stop idealizing our system, we need to realize that the problem is not neoliberalism, but it's the really the foundation of our economic system that um, has been ruling our societies for much longer than the 1970s. Neoliberalism is just a more enhanced and exaggerated form of what is actually the norm under capitalism, as the thesis of my historical political economy book is really to say, if you want to keep capitalism, you got to keep austerity. Otherwise, you really found find a way out that is truly democratic and coming from below.
0: Thank you for, for these interesting considerations. Now, I would like the last two questions uh, to be not only, but also about uh, the history of economic thought, because I would say that this book can also be read as a text on the history of economic thought. Uh, And there is something I was frankly not expecting in the foreword, that is your thoughts on Keynes and him being to some extent involved with austerity. I found this surprising and interesting at once. So could you expand on that and perhaps compare him to other economists who play a major role in your story?
1: Thank you. Uh, this is the part one of this the, 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 uh, the capital order has many provocative message. One is the one that uh, shows the parallels between a liberal society and a fascist society in terms of economic policies and the types of economic rhetoric backing them. The other is clearly, uh, which gets people even more upset, is um, showing how Keynes himself was not uh, really a critic of austerity at all uh, in the early uh in 1919 1920 but actually was advocating harsh deflation and uh as a way to avoid the complete collapse of bourgeois capitalist civilization. So the story I, I tell has Keynes as um a personality in the background but what you see is that he um through him um what you noted is that there are ma- many more similarities that one usually stresses uh, in terms of economic models. Um, the Keynesian economic model has eliminated the centrality of the worker as the engine of the economic machine, um, replacing him with the the investor. Um, Keynes also buys into the fundamentally the methodological individualism that um for Glow's class analysis, um, just as his austerity colleagues, austere-minded colleagues, so um, what the, the the capital order shows is that, um, of course, we don't want to um, say everyone is the same. We, I'm be, uh, the book is very uh, sensitive to the fact that the biggest um, challenge to the orthodoxy posed by Keynes was his rejection of Say's law. Um, so the fact that uh, savings does not equal investments, and there are many, so changes in um, in the theoretical framework of Keynes. But this, first of all, develops later, develops in the 1930s. And second of all, it doesn't really challenge uh, some more fundamental similarities between the Keynesian framework and the um, austere framework. Um And so this, I think, helps us explain a lot of what is happening still today, in which in a moment of too much of a heated labor market in the United States, um, Keynesians uh, or Neo-Keynesians, and we know that Keynesianism is very different from Keynes, that it has a very multifaceted uh, um, form in different schools amongst Keynesianism, Keynesians, but what you really see is that there is a consensus that uh, when the economy is in an upswing, and this was Keynes himself, the solution is austerity, right? His famous quote was, "Austerity. You shouldn't do austerity in a. It's it's the it's the boom, not the slump, that is the right moment for austerity." So really, what you see today from Janet Yellen to all of these figures in power leading the financial institutions that matter, uh, especially central banks who self-define as Keynesians uh, of some sort, um, they have no um, other better uh, remedy than to deflate the economy. And why do you need to deflate the economy through higher interest rates? Well, because again, you need to curb the bargaining power of the workers who um, are really considered those who are uh, responsible for this price spiral due to the fact that wages have gone up too much. so once more, I think the book is trying to say, let's t- think deeper and let's look at some alliances that are so important. In a moment in which there is a questioning of the system as such, uh, then there needs to be some alliances that are quite uncomfortable, both between fascists and liberals. And also between someone like Keynes and his treasury experts, uh, colleagues, that then he will criticize later on. But he will criticize them in a moment in which the working class has already been defeated uh, by the dose of austerity of the early 1920s. So Keynes can critique the treasury view, criticize the orthodoxy only once. Capitalism is once more safely in the saddle and not threatened by revolutionary charges from
0: below. Thank you once again for, for this uh, clarification. And now the, the, the last question, which I, which I said earlier, will be about the history of economic thought, but not only, actually, it's, it's perhaps more about the problem of today, namely inflation. And I understand there's a relation between the modern form of austerity, born as a global technocratic project at the Brussels and General Conferences, as you say, and the narrative praised by that project whereby excessive consumption combined with unwillingness to work productively for a low wage were the causes of the crisis capitalist was undergoing. Therefore, and I quote, Inflation and budget deficits, the two great evils of the time, were nothing more than symptoms of a much deeper flaw, namely individual behavior, and I end quote. If I'm not wrong, the archival research to write this book was conducted when inflation was not yet the problem it is today, not the same magnitude at least. Uh, you argue that austerity was the solution for a specific type of crisis of capitalism, but the book seems also to speak to current times. And toward the end of the book, you mentioned Michal Kalecki, who brilliantly argued that full employment is detrimental to capitalism, in that the capitalist would lose the power to discipline the workers. So could you expand on the relationship between austerity and inflation and precisely what are the consequences for the current historical moment?
1: Thank you. Yes. Um, the large, uh, largely um, popular reception of the book so far, um, uh, a book that again uh, has quite a radical thesis, is I think uh, also largely due to the incredible parallels. Uh, between what happened after the First World War and what we're seeing in this very moment. We are in a historical moment in which in the United States, in Britain in particular, um, there is a there is an increasing amount of challenges to the very pillars of capitalism, especially wage relations. People are quitting their job. The Great Resignation is real. In 2022, in the United States, 46.6 million workers quit their jobs. And in 2021, 47 million workers. So this is an average of 2.5% of workers every month of the participants in the labor force. This is happening in Britain. There's a sense by which this is a rebellious, the spontaneous rebellion against wage relations in the sense that people are fed up um, uh, with respect to going for work in such precarious conditions. And this is a phenomenon, by the way, that is happening also in Italy and elsewhere. Um, So um, this great resignation combined with the increased unionization drive, there's a huge unionization drives in the United States at the moment especially in the service sector, Starbucks, Amazon, uh, Chipotle, uh, Pete's Coffee, you name it. They're all unionizing and they're battling for increases in wages, which are actually happening because the labor market is tight. Because in fact... What if 10 years ago there were two people competing for one job opening? Now we're in a situation in which there's for every unemployed, there's four job openings. So we see that bargaining power has completely reversed in this historical moment. And of course, workers ha- are weaker because of the uh, successes of austerity that of the last 100 years. Yet we are in a situation in which there is, in a way, at least a uh, Space for, uh, we could say, some form of breakdown of the dominant ideology by which the system we're in is the best and only possible one. So it is in these historical moments of challenges to the status quo that austerity has to hit again and hard. And this is why, as I was saying uh, before, experts at the Fed, self defines Keynesians, say it extremely, extremely put it really bu- bluntly. They say. Unemployment serves as a worker discipline device, and this uh, resonates a lot like Michael Kalecki that you just cited. But actually, it's not Kalecki saying it; it's uh, Janet Yellen in a um, secreted document. He wrote; she wrote already in 1996. Um, Uh, for the Fed chairman at the time, Alan Greenspan, who again uh, had done uh, much deflation in his time as well. So here we see clearly that the experts in power know very well how in order to guarantee the monetary stability that is necessary for economic growth to work smoothly, the precondition is to tie the bargaining power of the workers through greater dosages of unemployment. So once more, we clearly see how monetary austerity has the explicit objective of disciplining the population. And this is not something that is being hidden. Uh, Experts use technical jargon, but when they say that the problem is that the labor market is too resilient and thus they have to keep pushing for higher interest rates in order to defeat inflation, They are saying it very bluntly. In order for economic system to work, the majority has to suffer. There has to be a certain degree of unemployment for it to be possible to keep wages low enough for the system to be working as it should efficiently. So unemployment is necessary in order to keep the bargaining power of the workers down and thus guarantee um, the expectations for profits that will Uh, allow for the economy to recover. So the fact that economic uh, growth under capitalism requires collective sacrifice of the majority is something that the experts in power know very well. And they also are saying in a much overt way in these last year. And so I think that the type of analysis um, that the capital order does by looking at what experts were doing 100 years ago is illuminating because it shows how the rhetoric, the language of the neutral expertise telling us all that it's really because people are living beyond their means that we have monetary instability, that inflation is not due to structural contradictions of the system, but it's due to the misbehavior of the unproductive consumers of the workers who should instead consume less and produce more, which was the motto coined. At the conferences of Genoa and Brussels, well, consume less, produce more is exactly what experts are preaching in this very moment as we speak. Um, so I think the book is in a way resonates very well because we are in another moment in which the fact that austerity is a form of one-sided class war against the people, especially moments in which strikes are going up, um, workers are mobilizing, unionizing, quitting their jobs. This is obvious, they need to reestablish the capital order. And this is the actual title of the book, The Capital Order. And this is the idea.
0: Thank you very much. This is a really interesting conversation that spurs uh, many reflections. I would love to have more time also to, to, to deepen uh, this uh, topic further. That is why I, I hope uh, to have you uh, as a guest again. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you so much for having me, uh, and I hope uh, that this book um, is capable of giving a different reading of history, in uh, of the history of capitalism of the 20th and 21st century, so that we can also have a more imaginative approach about the future uh, before us. And I think it's my small contribution and the contribution of all scholars should really be that of providing tools to rethink the past in order to rethink the present and the future. And this is uh, what I, uh, I tried to do. And I tried to do it the best way possible <laughs> for my possibilities. Thank you so much for having me.
0: And to conclude, I would like to encourage our listeners to subscribe to the podcast on Spotify and to follow us on our social media, uh, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. See you to the next episode.